Hi, I'm Paul Listick, and welcome to Behind the Curtain. And good day, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listick Behind the Curtain here on WGN Radio. Always good to talk to you, and, you know, usually on the TV side, I'm always covering politics, and while I branch out a bit to sometimes the arts and theater here on the podcast, today we're going to kind of stick with politics, but in a step above way, because we're talking about a new book called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. We're going to take a look at um, the power of Abraham Lincoln, not just in his day, but beyond in today. And joining me is a, a guy I just so admire watching him on television. John Avalon is a senior political analyst for CNN. This is his new book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. John, it's good to talk to you. And I have to start by asking, I mean, you've written a bunch of books, Wing Nuts, Extremism, and The Age of Obama, but you also wrote a book called Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. That was a few years ago. Are you like yep. the male Doris Kearns Goodwin? <laughs> uh, I would never presume to compare myself to Doris, although <laughs> she is lovely and I admire her. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, what I try to do uh, on top of my, my daily journalism is um, I do believe in the power of, of popular history, uh, of applied history. And so Doris is, is one of many, you know, contemporary historians I admire um, in addition to, you know, David McCullough and John Meacham, who was kind enough to give me a blurb, and Doug Brinkley and uh, Ken Burns on the on the on the documentary side of things, and uh, Edmund Morris, who passed recently. You know, I, I, I'm I'm always struck that a lot of um, a lot of popular historians whose work people love are not necessarily academically trained, but it's all about making the old stories new again, and I think that's one thing that we share, and an attention to the, the writing itself. Uh, I think that's well, where the and, fun and I, comes in. And I guess the reason I asked that that question, Lincoln, Washington, you know, you're you're back to the classics. You could be writing about uh, Britney Spears, you know, or something else. So, so it, what is bad. it about these? Yeah, <laughs> what is it about these sort of founding father types like Washington, Lincoln? Of course, I don't even have to ask you why. But what is it about looking at some of these folks from the from the classic days of politics? Maybe Franklin Roosevelt is next for you. I don't know, but people whose messages because what you do in this book um, when I first started reading and I thought, okay, I'm going to read, I, I had Doris in my mind because I thought oh, I'm just going to read this whole book about Lincoln and, and the history of Lincoln. But no, it's not that. The last quarter or so, you get into applying Lincoln to every event since him, World War One and Wilson and everything that comes out. It was fascinating that you did that. But my question is, what is it about some of these old key figures that have you take them and say, but we need to learn from them today? Well, it, it, it's a great question and the important question. Uh, in both cases, and in all my writing and all my journalism, I think one of the clear through lines is trying to uh, show that we can overcome our divisions, hyperpartisanship, polarization in particular, and that our, our greatest leaders have often been people who governed from the center, who found ways to highlight what unites us, not what divides us, even in deeply divided times. With Washington, um, you know, and in, in, in both cases, I try to take a, a, a deep cut and a deep, a, at a different angle. I try to take a, a, a smaller aspect of their life and make it universal. So in Washington's case, it's Washington's farewell address. And I think you can tell the story of Washington's life through that prism, because it contains all his hard-won wisdom and war and peace. But particularly, you know, the Founding Fathers often get misappropriated and, and manipulated by people for their own partisan ends, often from a highly ideological, hyper-partisan perspective. And that's the exact opposite. 
of what the founding fathers believed and what they wanted. And a big, a big chunk of Washington's farewell address, which he wrote to us, he wrote to future generations, was um, the dangers of hyperpartisanship, what we would call hyperpartisanship, to our democracy. In addition to that, you know, dangers of excessive debt, foreign wars, foreign influence in our elections, all things that are pretty contemporary. Um, and, and go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and on that very point, you, you write about the fact that Lincoln asked people to rise above the personal, the partisan politics. It, it's what he did to try and address the Civil War. And when I take that and sort of apply it to today's world, where Joe Biden says, let's, you know, different words, but let's rise above the per- Actually, he did do that even in his um, in his State of the Union. I mean, let's, uh, let's mm-hmm. rise above the personal and, and, and partisan politics. I'm curious, like today, you, you listen to him, people listen to him and say, okay, that's not happening. I mean, did Lincoln... Did Lincoln actually believe it? Was he Joe Biden of his day, believing that unity was a, could be a thing? Ah, Lincoln is a Joe Biden of his day. Um, <laughs> I, here, here's, here's what I'll say. Um, you know, Biden, um, I think, shares um, some things with Lincoln, particularly um, this. I don't want to make too much of the comparison because Lincoln is like Lincoln. And if we sit around waiting for the next Lincoln, we're going to wait a long time. What you need is people right. with a similar spirit. And what I mean by that is the study of history is very clear uh, that uh, America's greatest presidents, the single most important quality is character. There's no substitute for character. And, and, and one of the things that Lincoln showed us is that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership. Lincoln absolutely believed what he said. It wasn't just a, you know, there's no gap between what he wrote in, in the second inaugural, you know, with mouths were done with charity for all and his actions. Um, in, in private, when people weren't looking, when he's comforting wounded Union and Confederate soldiers in the aftermath of war, and extending his hand and listening to their stories, that's the portrait of a peacemaker. That's the empathy that's necessary. He didn't, he didn't divide in order to conquer. He didn't demonize people he disagreed with. He believed that empathy was a means of reasoning with your opponents. And he used humor and humility and honesty and logic and scripture to do it. And, and those are all tools in, 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 in leaders' arsenals if you have the strong foundation of character to build upon. Uh, and, 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 and Lincoln did, and I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, his reconciling leadership in a time of radicals and reactionaries remains so, so revelatory and has inspired leaders throughout history. You know, as you wrote about Lincoln, you you made the point back in Civil War times. Again, I'm, I apply almost everything you you write to today because heck, you did it towards the end of your book uh, as you look to the future, but and, and future events since Lincoln. But you you wrote that that Lincoln's view was that losers of the Civil War had to have a sense of ownership in the Reconstruction that followed, but. but that was after accepting defeat. So it seemed as though Lincoln's view yeah. that, that you share with us is that Lincoln said, okay, first you got to acknowledge that you lost, and then I want you to own where we're going in the future. But when you look at today, of course, and the election of 2020, a couple of years behind us at this point, there is no acceptance of defeat, certainly not by the candidate and not by, what, 57, depending on the poll, 50, 70% of Republicans who just think this election was stolen. Well, they're looking at that as a war, like comparing that to a war scenario. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and look, I think it's important to recognize one of the reasons we can learn from history and, and, and learn from the Civil War in particular is the dangers of, of, of tribal divides in our politics. Um, the, the fact that, you know, we can't take our democracy for granted, but we can take comfort from the fact we've been through far worse. As you say, Lincoln's prescription for winning the peace, which is what this book is about, 
stems from his fundamental understanding that particularly in civil war, you don't, if you don't win the peace, you don't really win the war. And so he was planning for how the nation could reunite and reconcile. And his basic prescription was unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. And, and, and it's for the reasons you say, he recognizes that the defeated need to accept defeat, but then you need to reach a handout and build them back up. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be truth before reconciliation. And I think what we're confronting today in the form of the big lie, and there's no historic parallel certainly in the presidency, to Donald Trump, who tried to overturn an election, um, uh, you know, and, and refused to accept legitimacy of election that he lost. But the people who were misled, um, you know, have bought into a new form of lost cause mythology, which is what, you know, the Confederates perpetrated after the, the, the Civil War. And, and that leads to dangerous things. Um, the equation needs to be balanced by both. Lincoln understood you need to combine strength with magnanimity. And I do think that one of the really uh, concerning, troubling, dangerous things about this particular moment isn't just um, a refusal to accept facts. I mean, democracy depends upon an assumption of goodwill and accepting defeat and, and, and doubling down to live to fight another day, not denying reality, which undermines the whole core premise of democracy. Um, but these folks have been lied to, they've been misled. Um, and, 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 you know, some of the, the, the laws left to us by the Civil War generation to deal with insurrections may, may, may appear more in the news going forward. Um, but it, it's a dangerous moment. We've been through worse. We haven't seen anything quite like Donald Trump. But we desperately need to learn from this. And, and, and we need to grow beyond it. Uh, and, and some people, you know, will, will only understand the language of defeat. But then it's followed by mercy. And, 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 and Lincoln's way of thinking about how you reunite a nation through just human incentives, it happens on an individual basis. Um, but trying to, you know, he wanted to move the attention of the nation west, have an economic expansion that would give people a sense of shared investment in a new prosperous future, um, all while dealing with the root cause of the war, ending slavery for all time. That that was critical. But the, our failure to win the war through Andrew Johnson's, win the peace through Andrew Johnson's, you know, cripplingly awful leadership, which was predicated upon a fundamental lack of character within himself, shows us that we can't take any gains for granted. And we do need to be aware of the dangers of voter intimidation, violence, voter suppression, election subversion, all those things that were done in different ways to deprive black men of the vote. And, and so we saw slavery replaced by segregation for a century. You know, these goals of a multiracial, multi-majoritarian democracy, there are things we're still working towards in the fullness of time. There's still resistance to it. So we need to learn from history. We desperately need to learn from history. And we need to be inspired towards the better angels of our nature again. And that's one thing Lincoln can do. He, his leadership offers us a path away from violent polarization. You know, it's always encouraging to me when any president, you know, sort of studies the past. I mean, Obama looked very closely at the history of Lincoln, and and uh, I don't mm -hmm. know that he's a scholar on Lincoln, but he clearly tried to study and learn from the lessons of Lincoln. And, and uh, given, let's acknowledge that pragmatism is important for a president or, or any leader. Mm -hmm. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Lincoln's thought of, uh, while he was against slavery and all that, I think he was known to take the position, and I read your book a while ago, so I'm not remembering if this was in the book or I just know this, but Lincoln often said, look, I'll get rid of slavery if that saves the Union, but I'll also preserve slavery if that saves the Union. It's about saving the Union. Um, correct me if that's well, not true, but go ahead. It, so, so 
his is an evolving perspective because he's trying to figure out how to deal with the immediate crisis, but then achieve sustainable change. Lincoln has always, in his public life, opposed slavery. But as a matter of politics, his primary focus was stopping the expansion of slavery, because he felt that once slavery expanded outside of the original states that had it, that that would put it away from its path of ultimate extinction, which is what many people hoped and assumed would and could happen over time. So once, once a compromise bill that allowed slavery's expansion got underway, he got into the fight running for Senate. He wanted to end slavery. He didn't believe he was empowered to do so under the Constitution as president. But the war itself created the context where he could push through the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, he came under a lot of fire from abolitionists for not moving fast enough on that front. It was his goal to get there. But what he understood was, is if you move too far too fast, sometimes you court a backlash that can actually hurt the cause of progress. And, and so, for example, at the outset of the war, there were a number of border states, including Missouri and Kentucky, that had slavery that hadn't joined the Confederacy. And if he had done the Emancipation Proclamation at the start of the war, that could have forced them to the Confederacy side. Instead, he worked to end slavery through legislative means in those states, as he succeeded in, in helping midwives in the case of Missouri put forward the Emancipation Proclamation eventually, um, put black Union soldiers into the field, which did enormous amount to turn the tide of the war and end prejudice through the power of example of their courage, um, and then was able to push through the 13th Amendment. When he's negotiating with Confederates to the end of the war, many of them proposed ceasefire, and there's enormous pressure to end the war, peace at any cost, anything to stop the, the, the bleeding. Lincoln refused to allow a ceasefire before surrender. Why? Because he was concerned that that would create the conditions for backsliding on the issue of slavery, that it wouldn't actually be ended, and, and that that would then just perpetuate the underlying problem and, and, and virtually guarantee another civil war. So, so, you know, he was thinking strategically. He is, a, as I say, a soulful centrist. He is, his gradualism has a grandeur to it because he's thinking about how to achieve sustainable change. And so Frederick Douglass says, you know, after the war, looking back, he said, you know, from an abolitionist perspective, from a genuine abolitionist perspective, Lincoln could be seen as tardy, cool, and indifferent. But from the perspective of an American politician who's brown to consult the sentiments of his fellow citizens, he was zealous, radical, and determined. And it seems to me that that's the wise balance. And that's, he achieved it. He got the job done, um, despite the fact that a lot of those gains were rolled back, um, during Reconstruction, and that's a tragic history we need to learn much more about and to, to confront and learn from. And by the way, I want our listeners to know that when they read Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, you get this deep discussion from you, you get all this meaning, but you also get fun facts like Tad had goat races in the hallway. So I just want you to know I, I remember that, that, that as <laughs> yes, well. there are goat races in the hallways. If nothing else, <laughs> come to the goat races, stay for the end of slavery through you know, someone who's, who's willing to be tactical to achieve transformational goals. You get those. <laughs> Exactly. Um, you also wrote that as the, the Civil War generation faded. You know, it's funny because now we're dealing with the, well, almost beyond the fading of the World War II generation, which my dad was a part of. Mm -hmm. um, but you wrote as the Civil War generation faded, the Lincoln legend grew, which made me wonder as yeah. I read, how much of our view of Lincoln today is accurate as opposed to, hey, those who were around at the time, if they were here now, they'd say, no, no, Lincoln is not the greatest guy you think he was. Well, here's the thing about Lincoln. Um, he rarely disappoints. I mean, you know, I got to spend four years studying Lincoln, and he is never mean or petty 
or small-minded. He struggles with emotions, sometimes anger, often with depression. He, he, you know, he, he is criticized by many of his contemporaries, certainly who is hated by some of his contemporaries, um, but he was often criticized for telling stories all the time. He spoke in parables. He told stories. He told jokes all the time, would read humor out loud, but it was a form of self-medication on his part because he was trying to soothe his soul. Um, and, and people didn't always understand that. What you will never hear, though, is the people who knew him best uh, always remarked upon his kindness, um, his wisdom, uh, his love. And, 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 and that is what, after his death, really endures. And you see these sort of people who, who end up being disciples of Lincoln through their life. Uh, and it's not that he was perfect. I think the biggest mistake we make is we put these figures up on a pedestal, and they seem like graven images. They seem distant and humorless. And, 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 and uh, ir- you know, we could never reach them. You know, you, you know in Illinois, you know, he's head of, of the Whig Party as a young man. He, he is a young man on the make. He's not without ambition, um, but he always has a moral humility. He has a, a modesty. He combines his moderation with moral courage, that balance is what is what allows him to be so deeply effective. So, part of my general approach is take these folks off the pedestal. Try to understand them as, as their contemporaries saw them, and as to the extent possible as they saw themselves. The texture and the character of the person, and understand that when we take them off the pedestal, we make their wisdom more accessible. It, it, you know, we we don't need to. You know, we we can we can learn from them, and we need to learn from them, and apply their own lessons to our own times in our own lives. And I think Lincoln uniquely does that. I mean, he did hold himself to the highest standards, but not without humor, not without flaws, not without occasionally despair and desperation. And, and that's what I think makes him so uh, relatable and, and ultimately inspirational. Um, he, he, I mean, he exhibits sort of a New Testament leadership in that he, he resolves to defeat hate, not with hate, but with love. And that's one of the things that makes his example so enduring and powerful. And and I'm going to kind of step out of the deep stuff again, just for something. What I love talking about you, the More author, right now. What's that? We're, I'm going back to the goats. No, it's, um, uh, it, no. I can ask the questions. Like when I read something, I'm like, hmm, I have a question about that, and here you are to answer them. So I, 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 I yeah, come back daily. There you go. Um, but, you know, I think one of the reasons people relate to Lincoln today is, is this magn- incredible Lincoln Memorial, of course, right, that, that, that's built him. Who doesn't go there and visit it? When I took my dad on honor flight, I took him. He had never seen the Lincoln Memorial. Very, very powerful moment. But you write in the book that his son, Robert, and was his only uh, surviving son, uh, when the memorial was uh, dedicated in 1922, he wouldn't speak at the event. And I, I, I didn't quite get the reason for that in the book. Was he just shot? I mean, he was a lawyer, and he, in fact, he had a law firm called Isham, Lincoln, and Beale, which was here in Chicago. Was he just just shy, or was there something more to the fact that he would not speak at the dedication of his father's memorial? I think he was burdened by the business of legacy promotion. He had a very accomplished career in his own right. He served in multiple Republican cabinets, all of whom wanted a connection to Lincoln. He was, you know, president, CEO of the the, the Pullman Car Company. Um, uh, but. He didn't have his dad's natural charm or gregariousness or love of public speaking. Um, and, and I think towards the end of his life, as it was when the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated, um, he didn't want to be compared to his dad and come up wanting yet again. So he was there. He was a direct living connection, the only surviving child, as you say. Um, but I think that's, 
you know, to the extent that we can answer for, for the dead who don't leave a direct record to a specific question, I, I think that's what explains it. Mm. Um, one of the things you also write about is called, you call, interpersonal glue. Uh, essentially, it was Lincoln's view that to win the peace, you had to create a, a common culture for, in his case, the North and the South, two very different cultures. And of course, when I read mm-hmm. that, I immediately go to our world, which is, you know, you can call it Trump versus non-Trump, red, blue, whatever you want to call it. It's not so much a North-South thing. But what is the interpersonal glue that has to be created or addressed today if we are to somehow win a peace or the peace? It, it, it in, in some ways, although we live in very different times and our, our challenges are serious, but not as, as deep as overcoming the original sin of slavery in, in living memory. Um, it's about decency. It's about kindness. It's about empathizing with your opponents. Um, and that empathy can be hard to come by, particularly when people are insisting on alternate facts and alternate realities and often you know, our politics take on the trappings of tribal identity. But I think what we need to understand is Lincoln did, uh, as someone who was born in the South and moved North and West, and someone who combined so many of the dualities and opposites, is that, is that we need to transcend our tribalism to survive as a nation. That's what America fundamentally is about. We are unique because we're the only nation in the history of the world based on an idea, not a tribal identity. And that's why Lincoln was able to keep faith, even in the middle of the Civil War, that there was more than unites us than divides us. And that's still true today. We're not nearly as evenly and deeply divided as it seems. We have vocal minorities who too often hijack debates, but they don't really represent the underlying culture of the country. Even in in the North-South, you know, people use a red state, blue state divide. But, you know, it surprises people to know that, uh, you know, virtually all major southern cities voted for Biden over Trump, voted for Hillary over Trump. Um, and, 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 and it's just a reminder that yeah, there are deep divides, to be sure, and many of them are urban versus rural, and those are as old as the debate over ratifying the Constitution itself. But what Ulysses S. Grant of Galena, and my, my uncle lives in, in, in Elizabeth, Illinois, outside Galena, um, uh, said 10 years after the fact, I sometimes ruminate on, but you need to do it with a spirit of moral humility, not moral superiority. Uh, Grant, Grant said that if we are to have a second civil war, I predict the dividing lines will not be Masons and Dixons, he said. It won't be North and South. It'll be between patriotism and intelligence on the one hand, and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. Um, that's a quote I had to check a couple times because we're a little too on the nose. But he that's said fascinating. In Des Moines, Illinois, 10 years after Appomattox. Wow. By the way, have you been to Galena? Which, when you're in Galena, man, you of don't even feel I like have. you're in Illinois. Incredible. Well, I mean, you know, that, that's a beautiful part of the country, and I love it. It's a great town, great, great part of the world. And there's a restaurant there. There's a booth. You can actually sit in Al Capone's booth when you next go there. So my picture's up in the restaurant, so you'll want to go. Is it, wait, what's the name of the restaurant? I can't remember. That's what I have to go uh, back to find. But it's the place that have, has Al Capone's booth. He used to go there all the time. So if you, you can probably Google that one, man. get it. And then you'll see me and Tom Skilling right up there on the front wall. Go with Grant over Al Capone every time. (laughs) It makes sense. Um, You know, if there was a any phrase of of that Lincoln said, you again tell me if I'm wrong. But if there was something he said that really impacted you, for me it was four score and seven years ago. Because if I was given that speech, I would have just said, "Hey, 87 years ago, let me tell you what happened." But um, you know, the (laughs) fact that he came up with four score is amazing to me. But for you, you are really moved by malice towards none and charity for all. Is that is that a fair enough that that really is a magic phrase for you? Well, yes. Um, and I think that whole concluding sentence 
um, which is both a sentence and a paragraph of the second inaugural, is a sacred American text. I think it's something you can't ruminate on enough, and it provides his roadmap to reconciliation. Um, it, it's all there. That's you know the, the, the second inaugural is seven hundred one words, and and most of it's kind of an Old Testament speech. He's talking about the war, shared penance for the original sin of slavery, but he takes a turn, a crucial turn, in the final paragraph, and it's New Testament leadership, and, and with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Which, by the way, gently notes that none of us can claim to know the will of God exclusively. Um, you know, let, let us go on to, to, to finish the work we are in, and ends with to achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That is a is a that's American scripture. That's the poetry of democracy right there, and that's why you know the book Lincoln, my book Lincoln: The Fight for Peace, is really framed with the story. Of, of, of the second inaugural. Um, I think it's, it's, we need to commit those words to heart and try to live up to them. And I know you feel that way. And that's why I wanted to bring that up. Uh, John, we've been talking for one score in seven minutes. And, and so I, I probably yeah. have to bring, <laughs> see, you're going to start doing that now, aren't you? Um, <laughs> What what is next for you? I mean, after Washington and Lincoln, and I know you've written some other books and stuff. Is it Millard Fillmore the musical? What 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 is next for you? Definitely not. Although my cousin did write a musical uh, about Andrew Jackson called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Oh yes, um, I've seen the show. Yeah, it's it's a, it's great, and I love it. and I'm proud of him, and it's 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 great. Um, so I uh, I mean I'm I'm this book is freshly hatched and I am on the evangelism circuit to help spread the word, and I've been really heartened at, at the response it's gotten from folks. Um, I, I've got a couple of ideas for, for the next book or books. Um, as, as, a, as a columnist, you know, you always have, you always have ideas, uh, you know, more than you can always execute on, but I, I think it's, it's bad luck to, to start laying out your ideas before you're ready to execute them, or certainly when they're sold, only that I'll say my general rule for writing books is you should write the book you want to read. Fair enough. And feel free to uh, think of me when you write that next book, including those silly little facts that I want to read as I go through it, because that's just me. <laughs> John Avalon, uh, I just, again, I continue. I just so admire your work. Whenever you come on CNN and, you know, give us your take, I'm, I'm glued to it. So please know you have many, but certainly this one fan out there who's just uh, really listening to everything you have to say. Uh, senior political analyst and author with CNN. It's a great book. Give my very best to your wife, Margaret, who's well-known in her own right. And um, I'll look forward to talking to you yep. again. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It is available on Amazon and in any good bookstore. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and be well. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.